You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. When I was a kid, we sang that song all the time. Don't worry, you could be here today and not know that song. You guys know the words of that song. When my kids were little, we used to sing the song to them all the time as well. And this was a real hangup for me. I went through a season of my life where I wasn't sure that God was real. And as I wrestled through that season, the whole idea that the Bible tells me so meant nothing. What it felt like to me was that my words were going up into the air, were literally hitting the ceiling and bouncing back to the ground. It felt to me like God wasn't listening and God wasn't present. And so therefore I determined God didn't care. And what was going on in my heart was this deeper wrestling with, is there even a God? Or if I were born to another family, say in Africa or, or South America or, or perhaps somewhere in Asia, maybe if I were born into another family, I'd learned about a different God. Maybe I would have believed in that God or maybe I would have found out that all of the gods are fake. What God did was he faithfully led me on a journey that really has lasted the better half of the last 30 years and I expect it's gonna keep going of faithfully, continually revealing himself to me. What I've been doing throughout this series, to the best of my ability, is trying to share some of that, what God has shared with me, with all of you. And today is gonna be the same. In fact, today and next week, I have a guest speaker, a friend of mine from Bible College coming in. I'll be here. His name is Brett. And he's gonna talk to us a little bit about how to know that the resurrection is real. So this week and next week are really all about that. So for those of you who are maybe not sure about whether you could trust in God or whether there ever was a Jesus or what to do with him, I hope to give you some handles to grab onto, some things to look into, to study for yourself so that you can know. If you are a believer already, my hope is that this will deepen your faith, your trust in him, and anchor not just that we believe because, eh, someone told us, but we believe because something happened in history and there's real evidence to actually believe it. How many of you guys were fans of the Lost TV series? Anybody? Eh, okay, okay, okay. How many of you are fans of, say, uh, Manifest? It's a newer TV show out right now. Okay, a few less of you, but it's like the third week in a row. I've brought it up. I, this, this sermon is paid for, sponsored by a canceled TV show. But anyway, so here's the thing that I find interesting. Oh, oh, how about this one? Any Star Wars fans? Okay, now we got a few of you. All right, all right. My understanding, and I'm no expert, so if you know different than me, feel free to come and correct me or, or tell somebody else. I don't care, whatever. So my understanding is George Lucas originally had a concept for nine stories. He convinced them to write four, five, and six because he felt like it was the most engaging of the stories. And he wrote those three stories, finally convinced somebody to make those movies, and he had them made. After number six, which kind of was one, two, and three at the time, after that was made, he commissioned some authors to write some books. And the books came out. And it created a conundrum because those authors contradicted each other about what would happen. I've never read those books. If you have, I could be wrong in my understanding. Somebody told me this years ago. But say in one story, Boba Fett goes on and does all these things. In another story, Boba Fett dies. And you may be like, you may be like what's a Boba and what's a Fett? It's fine. The point is the authors didn't have a unified story and it created a conundrum when they were going to finish seven, eight, and nine, those movies that we don't speak of. When they went to finish those three Star Wars movies, it created this problem of, well, what is considered canon? And canon has to do with what is the actual reference point where we go back and know this is the truth. 
This week and next week, we'll talk a little bit, not a lot today, about canon. Next week, a little more about canon because there is a canon of the scriptures. Lost is the same way. So there were two primary authors. They reached out to a guy named J.J. Abrams and he kind of came in and they had a dream brainstorm session where they dreamed up some stuff that could happen on this lost island. And these same two writers though said, I read this article years ago, I can't find it anymore, but it said early on that they had like the last two episodes in a locked vault. They knew exactly where the story was going. Well, then when we got to the end, we found out, well, that may not have been totally true. Somewhere along the way, they had to hire a full-time staff member to keep them on task because they started creating characters and storylines that contradicted the very story that they wrote two years earlier. So you have two authors in a five or six year span who can't keep their stuff together. Now, the reason I find all of that fascinating is this, the Bible. Did you know that the Bible has 66 books? 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and 40 different authors. Ballpark. It was written over 1,500 years. Has three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Some of these languages didn't even exist when the original ones came out. It was written on three separate continents. And yet all of the Bible points to Jesus. Now, you may go, how do I know that? Well, first, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus is walking with some disciples, and he says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, so for those of you who don't know, the law of Moses came roughly 1,500 years before Jesus, and the prophets, which was a variety of men, and they were, came between roughly 500 and 900 years before Jesus, and the Psalms, which most of which were written by David, not all of them, some Solomon, sons of Korah, some others, but David's life, lifetime was around 900 to 1,000 years before Jesus. And he says, all of these things had to be fulfilled because all of them were about me. So the question is, is that true? Well, there's a kid's Bible, study Bible, and this graph can be found in that kid's study Bible, and this may mean nothing to you, but... These are Old Testament texts that came true in Jesus. And if you could see this up close, you would see the various color bands that break down like this. The yellow is what Messiah or Jesus would be like. The peach is his lineage. The gray is our need for him. The red is his character. The pink is how he will come. The light blue is how he will be received. The dark blue is what he will say. The teal is what he will do. The turquoise is how others will respond. The dark green is how he will redeem. And the light green is how it's gonna end. Now, come back to the graph for me, if you will. Is anybody else in awe? 66 books, three continents, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, and one story. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When we say that the Bible tells me so, this isn't just your parents thought this up, or some guy like me sitting in a room with some other people like me thought, you know what, you know how we wanna control the world? Here's how we're gonna do it. We aren't smart enough. I promise you, if you've met me for more than 10 minutes, you will know I'm not smart enough. 
I couldn't create that if I wanted to. God has been writing this book. You could call it a love letter. Thousands of years. So that you would know with absolute proof he loves you. And the greatest way to know that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the fact that he died. If you aren't convinced of that, go back and listen to last week. We used a passage in the Old Testament from a book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And we're gonna pick up there again because of some of what it says to us. Now, Isaiah 53, actually 52 and 53, is what we call predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is that time where God speaks and then he tells us before something happens that it's going to happen so that when it does happen, you'll know it was from God because he is the only one who can make known the end from the beginning. He is the only one who can know what is going to come to pass so that when it does come to pass, you could say, oh, wow, I should probably pay attention. And there's a couple things in Isaiah 53 we didn't get to last week because they deal specifically with the resurrection. So let's pick up now Isaiah 53 verse nine it says this. He, this is Jesus, was, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Okay, so again, this is a prophetic text telling us what the Messiah would look like one day when he came. So let's just work backwards through this. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We are told consistently through the gospels that the reason Jesus can be our sacrifice, the reason he can die on a cross to take away our sin is because he himself had no sin. If Jesus had sinned and had been just like any of us, then dying on a cross would have been not worth very much. It wouldn't have done anything different than any of us. It was the fact that he lived the life we should have lived so that when he died the death we should have died, it would accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. And he had no deceit in his mouth. He spoke the truth, even offensively so at times, in all ways and at all times. Not only that, but he did no violence. You would expect a man being crucified on a tree to have done something to deserve what was happening to him. But we were told roughly 700 years before he came that he would do no violence. As Jesus is being arrested, he makes clear to Peter and the, those who are with him, hey guys, hang on. You don't need to stop this. You don't need to grab your sword to go to war because if I wanted, I could call down all of the legions of heaven's armies right now. I could stop this whole thing. I could not only stop it, I could overwhelm my enemy, but not once. Not once did he hit or hurt or attack. In fact, when Peter, one of his closest disciples, lopped off the ear of a Roman soldier, Jesus simply reached down, picked up the ear, ew, and put it back on the soldier. I guess, actually, this was a servant of the high priest. One of our members said to me, uh, after I taught on this passage years ago, he said, think about it. God gave even a sign to the high priest as a faithful testimony to who Jesus was. But Jesus didn't go to war, just like we were told 700 years beforehand. So then what about these other two? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. If you know the story, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. So two thieves who are being punished for their crime. In fact, one of them starts mocking Jesus while they're hanging there. And the other one comes to Jesus' defense. And the other one says, why are you hurling insults at him? He's done nothing wrong. You and I, we're getting what we deserve. But him, he's innocent. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he wasn't wicked. And with the rich in his death. 
Let's jump forward 700 years to the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples, later became one of the apostles, and he was a tax collector. In chapter 27, verse 57, Matthew writes this. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea, a what? A rich man named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Can we just go back to Isaiah 53, 9 real quick? He was assigned a grave with the rich in his death. Did it come true? Who could know 700 years ago or beforehand that a rich man would come and place Jesus in his tomb? Only God could know. Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Even though he's going to be cut off from the land of the living, we looked at that last week, even though he's going to be, die and be placed in a rich man's tomb, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How in the world could he see his offspring? He's dead. When you're dead, will you see your offspring? Of course not. Why not? You're dead. But Isaiah told us 700 years earlier, he wasn't going to stay dead. Look at the next verse, verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And this is beautiful right here. He will see the light of life. Though he will go into the darkness of death, he will come out and see the light of life 700 years ahead of time. And not only that, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. What does it mean to be justified? I love this little cute analogy, but I'll use a more serious one in a moment. Do any of you have kids? And do you ever catch your kids fighting? And you go to your kids and you say, stop it. What happened? And the one kid says, he did it, or she did it. And the other one says, no, uh, they did. And you finally get them to calm down and tell you what happened. You're like, what happened? Well, they did this, then what happened? Then I did this, what happened? Who did what happened first? And you finally find out who the guilty party is. And they go, yeah, but if they hadn't, I wouldn't have had to. And this has been happening ever since the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and Adam looks at God and he says, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. And Adam is blaming everybody but himself. It's never his fault. It's God's fault. It's Eve's fault. It's everybody else's fault. Why? Because we love to justify ourselves by blaming somebody else, don't we? Think about the worst moments of your life. Aren't you free and clear because you wouldn't have needed to do that if they would have done this? Or you were right to do that because you know how greedy and evil they are? Or do you know who else, all the bad things they've done, the little things you've done, they're not that big of a deal. And this is the problem. We, I, me, you, all of us, we have a sin problem. And this sin has ruined our lives. And it's made us chase after things that aren't good. They've made us do things to try to hide and cover and justify ourselves. But Isaiah tells us when this Messiah comes and when he dies, and then when he sees the light of life after he's dead, he will justify many. How? Because he will bear their iniquities. 
when he dies on the cross and he raises from the dead, he will bring life with him so that in his death, he'll take the penalty for their sin so that in his life, he could give them what they could not accomplish for themselves. This past week, we had a 74-year-old man get baptized. And I, 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 one day, I hope I get to tell you the whole story. It's a God story as there ever was one. It's so cool. I just don't have permission to tell you the whole story. But when he heard about this thing called baptism, he looked at our staff and he said, you mean all of my guilt will be washed away? Yes, that's exactly what it means. We are now justified, not by our excuses, not by how much good we've done and have we done more good than evil. We are justified by him who justifies freely. Now, yeah, you can stop clapping for God. That's awesome. Matthew 27, verse 62. And again, jumping forward 700 years now. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver, notice what they called him, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception, it'll be worse than the first. Pilate answers, take a guard. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. We'll talk about all that in a moment. Chapter 28, verse one. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. As I was wrestling through this as a young man, uh, I'm, I ended up at a concert with uh, two very small bands that if you have, did not grow up in the church culture, you would not have heard of DC Talk and Newsboys. And you might be better off that you haven't. But I went to their concert one night and a guy named Josh McDowell came to the concert and he taught on the stuff that I'm about to share with you. In fact, some of what I got, I actually got from an article Josh McDowell wrote just a few years ago, summarizing that same content. So I wanna give Josh McDowell some credit, although I only quote him once and I'll tell you when I quote him. But here's the thing. Josh McDowell began to help me understand that the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is so profound that it's one of the most, if not the most well-attested to event in history especially in antiquities. So I'm not a history scholar. I do love history. I like to read history and watch the History Channel. But history scholars understand this. So they have to come up with an explanation for the evidence that somehow says, what do we do with the fact that there was a guy named Jesus? History tells us that. That he really must have died, whether he really died on a cross or whatever. But did he raise from the dead? And at the end of the day, that is what our faith hangs on. All the other stories in the Bible, we could argue about them, we could talk about them, but if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, it all means nothing, nothing. This is the moment. So 
Let me tell you the most popular theories to explain Jesus' resurrection, and then I'll give you some evidence, and you can decide for yourself what you believe. Here we go. The first theory for what actually happened to Jesus' body, besides that he rose from the dead, and we see this actually in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 15, and that is that the body was stolen. I'm not going to talk about what I do or don't think about these theories right now. We'll get to that. I'm just going to tell you what they are. But it goes like this. The disciples came in. They wrestled the Roman guard who were there protecting it. They broke the Roman seal. They rolled away the stone. They took the body and got away. Now, there could be a version of the story where they snuck in. They sneakily rolled away the stone. They sneakily grabbed the body. They went off with them and no one knew. They woke up the next day. They're like, oh, what happened? The disciples did it. Theory number one. Theory number two, it's called the vision theory. This was popularized by David Friedrich Strauss around in the 1800s. And the theory goes like this. There are all these people who said they saw the resurrected Jesus. In fact, there's over 500. There's over 500 at one time, plus these other stories we have in the New Testament. And what happened was they didn't actually see the resurrected Jesus. They all must have been smoking some wacky tobacco or something was going on. But they all had a collective vision and they thought they saw the resurrected Jesus, but they didn't actually. Something else happened, but they saw something. It just wasn't really that. Number three, the swoon theory. And I briefly touched on this one last week, but a guy who makes great pasta, Carl Venturini in the 1800s. I have no idea if he makes good pasta. I just like his Italian name. All right. It's called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory goes like this. On the cross, Jesus didn't actually die. Again, if you didn't listen to last week, go back and listen but he didn't actually die. He was placed in the tomb, and after a few days, by the way, man, I got really worn out. Between vacation and camps and retreats and summer stuff, I hit a wall this week, and I literally napped on and off for two straight days. It was glorious. I was so tired. By the third day, though, I feel great. I got so much energy this morning, and that's how Jesus felt. And on the third day, he woke up, pushed away the stone, walked past all the Roman soldiers, and showed everybody, look, I'm alive and well. Theory number four. The annihilation theory. This was popularized by D.D. Arnold in the 1900s. The annihilation theory goes, Jesus actually died, except for after that, his body literally disintegrated. Yeah, pretty much nobody buys this theory. I'm not even really gonna comment on it past that. But his body just literally, didn't just disappear because somebody stole it, it just disintegrated. Okay, and the last one. The wrong tomb theory. This was popularized by Kearsop Lake in the 1900s. The wrong tomb theory goes like this. When the ladies went to the tomb to take care of the body on the third day, if you remember, Jesus dies, it's Friday, Saturday, it's Passover, it's a Sabbath day, they can't go to the tomb, they're not allowed, it's considered work, it's against the law. And so on Sunday, they showed up and they went to the wrong tomb. And the gardener who was there to greet them basically goes, oh, no, 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 he's not here. And they misunderstood what he said, and they thought he meant he's not here because he rose from the dead, but they were just at the wrong tomb all along. So when they go back and they grab the disciples, they bring the disciples, it's still the wrong tomb. Okay, before we talk about why those theories don't hold water, I just want you to know, these are the best, besides just the general statement of, I just simply don't believe it. These are the best theories to explain it besides he actually rose from the dead. So let's talk about some of the evidences. Ready? Fact number one. There was a broken Roman seal. A seal was placed on things in that day by Caesar, and it was punishable by death. A seal was Caesar's way 
or governor's way of saying, I'm marking this, I'm sealing it, and only the person that I designate to open it is allowed to open it. To not open it would have meant you would have been killed. To allow someone to open it, if you were the guard or the person put in charge of it, would have meant that you would have been killed. So we have a problem for the Roman soldiers, which we'll actually get to in a moment, who are handed a seal and handed the responsibility to keep it sealed until the person allowed to open it opens it. We'll get to that. Fact number two, there's an empty tomb. I mean, like, there's literally an empty tomb. Let's just take one of those theories. Let's just take the wrong tomb theory, the last one. So let's say Mary and the other Mary, they show up at the tomb and um, they're at the wrong tomb. And the gardener says, oh no, he's not here. And they think he means, oh, he's not here. He's risen from the dead. It's just a misunderstanding. They go grab the disciples. And all of a sudden, rumors start to spread that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Do you know how easy it would have been to just stop this and go, whoa, 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 back up, back up, back up. Joseph, can you take us to your tomb? Yeah, it's this one over here. Does it have a Roman seal on it? Yes. Are the Roman guards there? Yes. Let's roll the stone away. Is there still a body in there? Yes. This would have been so easy to prove wrong. If that makes any sense to you, it doesn't make any sense if you think through it. All they had to do is go grab the body and say, guys, come on. Like, I know you want him to be alive, but here he is. So why didn't they? Fact number three, the large stone was moved. We make it sound like, you know, this is like a garden stone, right? And he's like, he's a strong man, picks it up and like, <laughs> drops it in place. That's not what we're talking about here. Josh McDowell, scholar, the guy I referenced earlier, this is a quote. He says this, on that Sunday morning, the first thing that impressed the people who approached the tomb was the unusual position of the one and one half to two ton stone. Let that sink in. That had been lodged in front of the doorway. All the gospel writers mention it. Those who observe the stone after the resurrection describe its position as having been rolled up a slope away, not just from the entrance of the tomb, but from the entire massive sepulcher. It was in such a position that it looked as if it had been picked up and carried away. Now I ask you, if the disciples had wanted to come in, tiptoe around the sleeping guards, and then roll the stone over and steal Jesus' body. How could they have done that without the guards' awareness? I'll go even further. If Jesus had only swooned, he'd only passed out, he had not died. How in the world? Again, I feel fantastic after two days of rest. I'm not rolling a one and a half ton stone today. I mean, I know, I know, some of you think maybe, maybe there's a chance, but if you were here for last week, Jesus has been flogged, his flesh has been ripped from his back, his hands and his feet were pierced, a crown of thorns beat onto his head, profound dehydration and blood loss, and that guy's gonna push a stone, any stone, and that guy's gonna come out and go, I'm alive. And everybody's going to go, look, he's the Lord. He can barely stand upright. Fact number four, the Roman guard goes AWOL. History records for us that for the guards to allow the disciples to steal the body would have been punishable by death. They failed to accomplish their mission. 
And yet the Roman soldiers were not killed. They were not punished. According to the scriptures, they were paid off. How easy would it have been to just bring out all the soldiers and go, tell us what happened, testify what happened. Now, why didn't that happen? I want you to imagine, you know, Jesus' little clan of disciples is filled with fishermen and tax collectors. Now, fishermen might have been some tough guys, right? They work with their hands. Tax collectors in that day would not have been tough guys. They would have been money counters and penny pushers. But you got this small band, you got 11, because one of them already killed himself, Judas. So you're down to 11 guys. And they went and took on a group of Navy SEALs with weapons. How easy would this have been in that day to bring out the Navy SEALs and have them say, oh yeah, they, they beat the tar out of us. They took the body. Or they snuck in and they took the body and you slept through the whole thing and nobody punished you and nobody killed you for failing in your duties. It would have been so easy. But that didn't happen. And then fact number five. There are over 500 witnesses, 500 at one time and additional stories. So even if you go with the vision theory of, well, maybe they all just, maybe they literally got high or maybe they were all using drugs together. It would be literally impossible for 500 people to have the exact same vision. And then it's over 500 because there are different witnesses at different days, at different times. And this is the best that anybody has come up with besides the fact that maybe, just maybe, he actually rose from the dead. So what do you think? I get it. This might be a, not be enough to convince you, but maybe, just maybe it could be enough to make you think about it. There's a book I recommend if you are thinking about it and you want to look into it deeper. It's called A Case for Christ by a guy named Lee Strobel. And I highly recommend the student edition. I actually think it's better the adult edition is, has a lot more information, a lot more content, and if you enjoy deep thinking and processing, go after that one. This one gets right to the nuts and bolts of it, goes right to the heart of it. It's really simple and easy to understand, and I think Lee does a fantastic job of walking through this stuff. But here's the thing. If Jesus really died and rose from the dead, it's a game changer. In fact, Paul says it's such a game changer. He says this to the church in Corinth. Chapter 15, verse 16, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus only died, you ever had that question? What's more important? Is it more important to do Christmas or Easter? If it gets to Easter, is it more important that he died on Friday than he rose on Sunday? Well, according to Paul, the most important thing is that he rose from the dead. Everybody dies. Lots of people were crucified for things they did wrong. Jesus was crucified and he was innocent, but the fact that he raised means that I'm no longer stuck in my sins. When Jesus died on the cross, we're told in the gospels, there's four testimonies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're told that that massive curtain, that massive veil that walled off the Holy of Holies where it said that God seated and judged over Israel, it tore from top to bottom, not bottom to top, if a human wanted to tear it, if somebody could sneak into the temple, could pass all the priests and the guards, they could rip it from the bottom to the top, but they couldn't rip it from the top to the bottom. And the temple veil tore from the top to the bottom. And because of that, the throne of grace now has been opened so that anybody, no matter where you've been or what you've done, how embarrassing or shameful or terrible you think it is, the sins, your sins, now rest on Jesus on the cross if you will place your faith in him. And this is why Hebrews, yeah, you can stop and give God the glory for that. This is why Hebrews says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. 
The whole idea is I no longer need a high priest to go before God on my behalf one time a year because the great high priest, Jesus Christ, has already gone on my behalf into the throne room of God. And he says, this one's with me. That's my son. That's my daughter. And I claim him as my own. I said, now when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see my failures. God looks at me. He sees a son or he sees a daughter. Jesus loves me. He who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. These verses were penned later after the original to try to hammer home this idea into our hearts. So what does all this mean? What do I do with it? Well, Paul in Romans chapter five, he's trying to lay this out for the church in Rome. And he's saying to them, look, here's how great all of this is. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you can never out God's grace. No matter what you've ever done and no matter what you ever do, you will never be able to out his grace. His grace will always stay a step ahead of you. Now that's a good day. But Paul sees the problem in that. Paul then gets into Romans chapter six, verse one. He's like, no, wait a minute. I get what you're thinking. And he says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace could increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Again, he's just making this point. Look, now because of Jesus, you have right standing with God so that no matter how much you sin, God's grace is always greater. And he's like, I get what you're thinking. Well, then why does it matter what I do? I'll just do what I want, what I want, how I want. And Paul's like, no. Don't you understand? The reason he died is not just to take away your guilt, but it's also to give you a new life. And then he goes on and he says, verse three, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, part of the reason we immerse here at Kingsway is because the water is a burial. It's a grave. So when you go down into the waters, these sin, past, present, and future, these sinful you, the evil you, goes into the water like a grave and it dies there with Jesus. And so when you come up out of the waters, you are now washed clean and filled up with the presence of God inside you. And Paul is trying to give everyone who's done this confidence and hope because he died, because he was buried, because he rose again. You too can die. You too can be buried and you too can raise again. And he goes on in verse 40, he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then he says in verse five, and don't miss this, for if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Yeah, amen, amen. So let me bring this home, okay? I don't know where you are. You could be listening or watching at home online months or years down the road. If you are listening to this, then there's still time. If you are listening to this, there's still hope. But please don't go another day. If you understand your need for a savior, Jesus wants to be that savior. 
If you understand that you have sinned and you need new life, Jesus wants to give you that new life. If you're stuck and you can't figure out how to break these patterns and habits, Jesus wants to give you the spirit to guide you and direct you, to help you, and so that you can never out his grace again. And all of that comes with the decision to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and be united with him in baptism. And we would love to tell you all about that. Two ways you can respond. One, at the end of this message, you can find somebody wearing a connect lanyard. They come down here and sit at the front, they kind of stand down here, you can find them. Or you can go to our Connect Hub right outside here. Either way, just say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. Or you could text the word connect, perhaps if you're sitting at home. We actually will have people on Facebook right now watching live and they'll just put the word connect in there and our team is ready to respond and reach out. Just text connect to 317-565-4911. But don't go another day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, my prayer is that you would use this message to deepen the trust and the faith of those who believe in you. God, my prayer is that you would use this message to draw all men and women to yourself. Jesus says, if you lift me up, I will do that. And our prayer, God, is that those who are wavering in their faith, they're unsure of who you are or whether they can trust you. God, my prayer right now is that you will take them deeper into their faith and understanding and knowledge of you. God, connect our heads and our hearts. May we not just be emotionally driven believers, but may we be knowledge driven believers who really believe that Jesus came, he fulfilled the prophecies, he is the Messiah, and he loves us so. And today, God, as we sing and worship you and thank you for all that you are, come receive our praise, God. Come receive this worship because you and you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you, church. See you next week.